For your own safety and for those around you, please stand at least one meter apart. Thank you. Ruff, ruff. So, you know, I like when I see, like, teenagers exploring each other's bodies and shit like that. It kind of turns me on. Oh, wait, we're all, <laughs> we're live on the Live Dudes podcast. My name is J-Mac, sexiest podcast and perviest podcast allowed by law. Of course, my name is J-Mac, host of the sexiest radio show ever invented on the internet, joined by my lifelong friend and stellar human being, Swade. What's up? <laughs> How'd you like that intro? That was quite an intro, man. How's it going? You never nice. know when I when I hit record. You never know what's good. What I'm going to say. I like to I like to throw little little monkey wrenches in for myself to try to keep myself fresh, and then to make my guests go, "What the fuck is he talking about?" Mission <laughs> <It's> accomplished. <laughs> we got a hell of a show. Cannot wait to get to it. First off, I would like to say if you'd like to get the show, you can do it on SoundCloud, Google Play, iTunes. Look us up on Facebook at Live Dudes Podcast. Also, we have a Tumblr page and a website, livedudes.net. We love getting messages, love getting any kind of feedback at all. I actually did get some feedback from a listener who said I should write a book based on my storytelling ability. And I'm like, well, that's actually kind of flattering. Um, so I'll take any compliments I can get. We, we've we got one of those shows that may be off the radar a little bit from usual Live Dudes podcast. It's not all about buttholes and farts. And dick jokes, although there probably will be some of those buried in the mix, as they always are. But Swade, you're you're hanging tough in L.A., and I'm gonna. T- I got a little bit of stuff we're gonna get into about what's going on here in St. Charles, Missouri. But I would like to hear from you. Our listeners want to know what's L.A. like because the Midwest is. We're kind of in a bubble. I still feel feel like we really don't get what's going on. Oh man, you know it is what it is. I guess like you know that's a really easy way to to, to say it. Um, the, you know. I I went out today. Uh, there's still a lot of people out and about. Um, it, it is weird, you know, as a, as I'm sure it is for everybody to see everybody wearing a mask. Um, and people are very compliant with that around here at this point. Um, but I would say, like, overall, things seem like everybody is really uh, uh, rearing and ready to go and get things back up and running. Um, so that's a good sign as long as we can, you know, keep each other safe. Well, one of the weird things um, in the Midwest, I think it's finally starting to hit home, but more so with the older folks than the younger folks. For Mother's Day, I took my lady friend, my sexy lady friend, out to the uh, plant nursery to buy her flowers. She said, she's like, you always get me roses. I'm like, oh, are you complaining? She's like, kind of. I'm like, well, that's <laughs> that's kind of rude. Oh, we should say we got uh, Martha in the house, too. I forgot that. I jibber jabbered on and forgot about you. Say what's up, Martha. What's up? I'm just sitting in, um, missing Miss K, and uh, sorry that my laughter in- interrupted you enough to have to stop. No, actually, your laughter didn't. I when I was talking about Naomi, I was like, oh, that's right. Swade's got a lady friend too. I should mention she's in the house too. So we went. To, we went to this plant nursery, and we were buying like petunias and begonias and whatever whatever ladies like to buy, and. It was early, it was like 10 o'clock in the morning, and it was all old people there. And it was an outdoor nursery. And I will say, we were the only customers not wearing a mask. And I felt sort of weird, but everybody in there was like 70 years old. And I got a couple dirty looks. First of all, I don't know where to get a mask. They're all sold out everywhere around here. 
Second of all, it was kind of, it was outdoor and, and like you could they they had signs you cannot if there's more than six people in this greenhouse you're not allowed to go in there to look at the plant. So I'm I'm outside going one two three nope nope we can't go in that one there's too many and then and then the whole of like social avoidance was really weird but not all the employees were wearing masks which made me feel a little bit better but it's like there's kind of a stink eye factor. Have you guys? I mean, I'm sure you, you you guys are probably wearing masks. So do you do you stink eye other people that aren't wearing masks? Uh, it, it depends on the situation. Um, if they're I like, definitely... "Hey, you!" <laughs> you might you might stink eye them. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll definitely lay the stink eye on that. You know, for me, like it's been just like there's been several times where people are like completely like like the mask makes them feel safe. And so they'll like get up all in your business and nope. you be like, can you please step back? Yeah, but can I just point out one thing, how far we've come? Because in the beginning, when most people were not wearing masks, he wore a mask to go into the grocery store and he got a stink eye for wearing one as if they thought he was sick and had it. And now you would get a stink eye if you weren't having it. So it's just people are just fucking judgmental. They just want to judge you for anything. But yeah, he did get stink eye for wearing it, and now he would get stink eye if he didn't. It's a true story. Yeah, it's it's a weird vibe. I was talking to one of the the people that work up at my son's school, and uh, he was saying he was like, you know, I don't know that it's really doing any any good because I see people in the store pulling their mask down to breathe. You seen that shit? But they they, yeah. they, they like pull their nose out. It's like, what's the point? What about the people that walk around with their nose hanging out of it? Yeah. <laughs> or where they cut the little hole in the mouth. Seen that yeah. shit? <laughs> Just defeats the whole purpose, you know. So, yeah, I mean, that's kind of been my reaction or my experience with the St. Charles, Missouri um, vibe is like the old people wear them. The younger people don't. We went out for a walk today at the park and there were... I didn't see but a handful of people wearing them, and it's usually only the old people because they're like, this motherfucker could kill me if he breed on me or shit. So, like, but the young people are like, I'm going to live forever. Woo! You know, it's kind of a weird thing. But I will say the only thing that I could say is that uh, if you're sneezing or coughing, I don't really know that, I don't know how much protection you're getting from, like, from other people with the mask on because they're saying now it'll get in through your eyeballs. I mean, what the fuck? Might look at somebody and get get the coronavirus. It's I mean, I know that's not what they mean, but it's I feel like we've the needle has swung so far the other direction now, and I don't know how much of it is effective, but it's making people feel safe. Do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, it makes a lot of sense, man. I agree with that. So you want to hear my uh before we get into our little conspiracy section, you want to hear my my weird story about what happened this morning? Of course I do. Okay, so I got up this morning and I was feeling fairly spry by my standards. <laughs> so it only took me five minutes to get my underwear up after I pissed in the toilet. <laughs> Just kidding. It wasn't that bad. So my lady has had her eye on these plants at this steak and shake up by the house that was scheduled to be demolished. And she's like, I'm going to go dig those things up before they demolish it. Well, Friday... We went up there and they were wrecking it. She's like, oh, I can't dig up the blimp. Like something she can get at like Home Depot for like five bucks. She wants to dig it up because she didn't want it to die. Which, I mean, I guess I kind of can. I mean, I plant sympathy. I guess I can kind of get behind that. 
But so so when I got out this morning, I told my little boy who had a hell of a rough morning and afternoon and evening. I said, get in the car. We're going to go for just a little drive around the local. We're not going to get on the highway. Just going to go put around town. And we drive by the Steak and Shake, the now demolished Steak and Shake, and there were still plants. And I was like, oh, we got to go back and get mom. Yeah, so we we drove around and we went back to to the house. I let her sleep for two hours because she was up at five trying to wrangle him. So I said, "Hurry up, get dressed. We're going up to the the demolished steak and shake. You can still get your your rose bushes and your daylilies and whatever." And she was like, "Oh, she popped up out of bed like like Jack in the Box and shit, just like let's go." <laughs> so I put the shovel, I put the shovel in the back seat of the Buick, and we have a laundry basket with towels. And we drive a, about a half mile. It's not far from the house. We get out. This is right in view of like a very busy intersection. And we drag the laundry basket and the shovel onto the demolished, uh, the demolition zone. And, and, and I give her the shovel and I'm like, please make this quick. So, so she's digging up daylilies on like a site that we're not actually supposed to be on. While like hundreds of people are driving by. And I was, I mean, I'm a nervous fucker anyway and i'm like please don't let the cops show up what do we i mean i know they're not gonna we're not gonna get arrested but it was a weird thing and i was like you know how much i love you i was like because i'm i'm actually getting crossing no trespassing zones to help you dig up free flowers so what i mean <laughs> what do you guys think of that you're speechless over there that's a that is that is some some love man that's hilarious well that it had to be exciting. i mean i don't think you're that familiar with this area, but there's a quick trip about a mile, about I guess right across from where the Steak and Shake is. And quick trips are like this local gas station. I think they're they're nationwide and they're busy as fuck all the time. So there's people coming and going. There's literally hundreds of people going by, and we got some looks. And she's in her flip flops with the with a shovel digging stuff out of lava rock. I'm like, why did you wear flip flops? And I know people. I mean, it sounds stupid, but the worst that would have happened is the cops would have been like. Come on, guys. What are you doing? You know you're not supposed to be in this demolition zone, but we, we got, uh, I think, four bunches of daylilies, if you know what those are. They're like perennials. Uh, they come back every year. And she's like, we should go up tomorrow. So <laughs> that may be what I'm doing tomorrow. I don't know. <laughs> totally worth it. Would Sway do something like that for you? I'm, I'm going to put you guys on the spot here. If you, I think you would. If you were like, let's go to this forbidden destruction zone and dig up it was like something like out of fallout 4 or some shit we were like digging through rubble <laughs> would you request that of him is that something that you would do are you that kind of a nature girl no i'm not, <laughs> I'm not but if i did i think he i think he would do it i think he would find uh certain ways to do it <laughs> but i think he would well, wait what does that mean find certain ways to do it with a mask, like with with a face mask on. <laughs> Absolutely, like wait, like like three in the morning or something. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. You, you would find certain ways to accomplish the mission. It's true. Well, <laughs> well, when my lady said, "Let's go up tomorrow and try to get some more," I was like, "Let's go up early when there's not like five hundred cars all around this intersection." Because I mean, I was just like, "Please, <laughs> please." I'm not, I'm not a praying man, but in that moment, I'm like, "Please, Jeebus." If you're there, please don't let the police pull up because I'm not really in the mood to explain why I'm helping my wife dig up stuff on like a no trespassing zone. Because they'd be like, there's a Home Depot a half a block away. 
You guys are probably your videos floating around of you on social media. Yeah, somewhere. yeah, yeah. Well, thank <laughs> Martha. Thanks for making me feel better. Now, now we'll be like, look at these jagged. We'll be like a meme or some shit. <laughs> It'll be like a like a smoking pile of rubble, rubble, and a man in sunglasses dazedly standing there while his lady in sandals digs up free plants. <laughs> That sounds pretty awesome, actually. Oh, yeah. I, I told Naomi, I was like, you know I love you, right? She's like, oh, yeah, I do. So, I mean, I guess that's that, that, that's that's my version of a honeydew. Most honeydews are like, oh, could you could you empty the trash or, or whatever? I'm like, I'll help you dig up flowers in a destruction <laughs> zone. So, there you go. That's hardcore, man. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit. Let's talk a little bit about this coronavirus conspiracy. There's a lot of it floating around. First of all, you guys have been more on the on the cutting edge of that than than I was. The theory behind the emergence of the coronavirus is let's Martha, aren't you? Weren't you on this before anybody else? Can you can you fill us in in the blanks here for me? Because I I didn't really know about this till late February, early March when it really got serious. Um, well, I mean, so the, the thing about this is it's just really hard to know what to believe because there are so many conspiracy theories and so many, um, you know, kind of rumors and innuendo about it. But I mean, if you listen, if you kind of pull it all together, a lot of the conspiracy theories about it are that, uh, the Chinese, um, communist party knew about this in December in order to cover up on it. Um, the doctor that was the whistleblower about it was, you know, some reports say he was arrested and other reports say he was just told to shut up. He died of the disease soon after. Um, and then there were conspiracy theories around the fact that while China was locking down Wuhan, you know, and not letting residents go to other communities, complete lockdown, no travel in or out, they were allowing, um, they, they were locking down their domestic travel while arguing with other countries that they should continue to let Chinese citizens in. So if you look at that, the conspiracy theory says, well, they knew they had it, they locked people down, but still they allowed you know, people to go and head out by the millions during the Chinese, um, the, the New Year celebration. So there's, I mean, just start with that. Those are just the basics. And from there, it gets even more crazy um, from arguments over whether it was engineered in a lab or if it wasn't engineered, whether it was maybe being uh, it was a virus that was being kind of experimented with and then it got out by accident. So there's all kinds of theories around this. Throw in Bill Gates and a few other things and you've just got a really nasty pot to stir around. But to me, one of the most intriguing ones that's that's within the past month has been all around the 5G towers that are being erected. Yeah, what's so that people- what's that about? <laughs> Explain that to me because I've seen like people are like burning them or like blowing them up or, or something. That's really <laughs> So so it, it 5G is like it's like cell phone tower, right? Right, it's these cell phone tire towers being put up around the world and so one one side of the conspiracy theory fence is that the cell towers are being put up. I'm sorry, the virus is out to keep everybody inside their houses while these are being put up in secrecy. And then the other side of the fence is that these towers are actually causing the virus and then it's going to cause cancer and people are blowing them up, setting fire to them. Like, you know, in, <laughs> in Britain, there's been 50 attacks on cell towers, five zero. So it's like, that's crazy. That's a crazy one to me. I have seen that. Now let's rewind a little bit back to the doctor 
who was the whistleblower. Now he died of coronavirus allegedly. Do you think there I think that's the truth? Gosh, who knows? I mean, I haven't heard any argument around whether he was still alive or not or just in hiding, but I do know that I've you know, read, and again, you don't know what to believe. I'm just reading things and hearing things, but you are hearing that there are many people who have been outspoken about this who have disappeared, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, um, well, not know what to them. From what I understand, and I think it's pretty much widely accept- accepted that China is not real uh, citizen friendly. So I could see why that, first of all, that guy that came forward has some balls. I really, I, I'm like, wow, that's, you didn't see that video of that motherfucker standing in front of the tank? <laughs> I know that was a long time ago, but it's like, uh, <laughs> yeah. um, the second thing that that worries me is apparently the virus uh, allegedly emerged from these wet markets. Um, that's where they sell like recently dead animals. Am I right? Well, the wet markets are where they have the wildlife and exotic type animals there and they butcher them on the spot. Oh, so they're not they're not necessarily dead yet. Well, that okay, all right. Well, that's that's why it's wet, I guess. Yeah, it's and even more dirt and filth and disease apparently is being spread because of that, right? Yeah, I mean, I, they I think they call them wet markets because there's the floors are so wet for me though. I serve cleaning up after, you know, slaughter and stuff like that. Now, are you are you guys familiar with that show? There, I think there's been a couple of them. Anthony Bourdain kind of sure. did kind of did one, but I think Andrew Zimmerman did the other. That's where the chubby bald guy went to all these, like I guess, wet markets and would eat like Ugh. raw eel and stuff like that. Now, how is that motherfucker alive? <laughs> That's a good point. I know, I know. It's it's really crazy. The the stuff that these guys would go around and eat is unbelievable. No, that sh- I- that that show that there's no way they can do that show now. I mean, but here's the thing. That dude, his immune system was probably so built up from all the fucked up shit he was putting in his mouth. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> most people don't have a time. I mean, like, I say you take 100 people from just the United States and take them to a wet market. Most of them aren't even be able to get the food in their mouth, much less hold it down and not get sick. You know what I'm saying? So, yeah. um, but but from what I'm hearing, there that's not. There's been no end to the wet market. It's still ongoing, which is just shocking to me. It is. I think they shut it down for a while, and now it's back. And you know, there was a lot of pressure to, to you know change the regulations about what they do. But you know, a lot of people will say that the wet markets are the way people survive, you know, and there's a lot of food there. There is the exotic food, but then there's other food there that, that people come and get um, to feed their family. So there's that whole argument about like they need them for, you know, sustainability. Um, But yeah, they're, they're still open, which is shocking. Well, I mean, from what I understand, I don't, it's like how many billion people is, is China? It's, it's a lot. There's a, there's a lot of people there and, and they're saying that, Without the wet markets, I mean, these people don't necessarily want to eat raw bats. There's just not a lot of their options for them. And in that sense, I do feel kind of bad. But, I mean, I don't know, man. I mean, like, we bought – this is this is third uh, first world problems. We bought a pizza from a, a local shop and save, and it was expired, and, and it stunk. And I was like, this is fucking bullshit. I'm calling the manager. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> 
And I mean, and it was just, it was expired by a few days, but it still had that, that slight odor. And I feel like, wow, talk about first world problems. Like I'm going to, I'm going to like get on my high horse and call the fucking manager and bitch about an expired pizza. <laughs> it's just kind of, it's kind of, it's a, it's a weird thing. Well, it's, you know, it's funny when I first was hearing about, about Wuhan and the wet markets and I was thinking, you know, it had to be something very rural, you know, and it's, Wuhan's like China, like uh, Chicago. Really? <laughs> really? Yeah, it's like 11 million people. Oh, okay. Wow. Well, that's, I guess in my mind, it was some kind of like, like village hut, like some kind of like village hub. <laughs> Where there's like right. a, like a bunch of surrounding villages and the and the farmers just drag in their whatever they caught in a cave or some shit. That's kind of what I thought. <laughs> no, it's like you go to a farmer's market, except they're selling like, you know, a bunch of like vegetables and stuff, but also like dogs and turtles and anything that like breathes. It seems like. <laughs> well, I've got I've got a story here, and I uh, I think it's it's. It's a social distancing story, and it's from Singapore. Now, you guys might have heard of this. I, I haven't seen it too many other places. And uh, this is what it says. Roaming robo-dog politely tells Singapore park goers to keep apart. Far from barking its orders, a robot dog enlisted by Singapore authorities to help curb coronavirus infections in the city-state politely asked joggers and cyclists to stay apart. Now, there's not a recording of this, but apparently it says, Roof, roof. Let's keep Singapore healthy. The yellow and black dog robot named Spot said in English as it roams around. What's Singapore? Why is he talking in English? They're like, I don't know what that. What's he saying? I don't know. Like, oh, it, it's it's literally saying it in English. It says it says it's saying in English. For your own safety and for those around you, please stand at least one meter apart. Thank you. Ruff, ruff. <laughs> and it, Who the hell designed that? And it's a softly spoken female voice. I'm wow, wow. <laughs> I don't know. That's amazing. But dude, okay, you're you're in a park and you're you're walking with Martha and you're walking down and you're like there's a lake or some shit and this robot thing comes running up to you and starts talking like barking. I I don't know if it barks, but it's it's yellow and black. I'm dude, I'm taking a picture and be like, it's just jackass. What's what is this shit? Seriously, can you get those on Amazon? I want one. Let's see. Uh, it says. As well as broadcasting messages reminding visitors of social distancing measures, Spot is fitted with cameras and analytic tools to estimate the number of people in the park. So uh, it's it's like it's like one of those uh like license plate scanning vehicles. Um yeah. or like Google like Google Map. Dude, I think we're we're entering into a whole weird world where we're ne- it's never going to be the same. I mean, don't you agree? I th- I have to agree with you that it sure seems like it's headed that way, or some some form of that for sure. Yep, that's the real reason, Sarah. If it has all the cameras and, and analytics, right? Well, you know, here's the weird thing that happened um, a few weeks ago, and I actually saw this vehicle again. I guess last week, um, it's a all black SUV, something like that. Uh, like the cigarette smoking man from the X Files would be like riding in the back of. There's cameras mounted all over the top of this thing, like two to the side, two to the back, and I think there might be two in the front. It went, I, I can't be sure, but there was at least four cameras on this thing, and it's just driving around. Some government spook-looking dude with with some like man in black sunglasses is, is driving it, and I'm like, what the fuck is that thing doing? I don't know what it was. I saw it. Seriously? I saw it later, and it said St. Charles Police, but I don't. I, that's not a police car I've ever seen. I don't know what it is. 
kind of makes me wonder if they're just not slapping a license plate on it and it's actually something else. So you guys haven't seen anything like that in L.A.? I haven't seen that specifically. No. That's that's pretty weird. This is where my mind kind of like wanders around and thinks, how much do they know that they're not saying? You know what I mean? I mean, I guess I'm getting a little paranoid, but um, they're talking about closing schools in fall. And not not reopening the schools in the fall. I'm like, God, hell, my kids, I gotta get them out of the house. But then, but then there's like these black, there's these like these. I mean, all I'm waiting for like the Art Bell black helicopters to start coming over, and it's it's fucking weird, dude. I don't. I mean, I feel like I don't. I don't see how we ever come back to anything like any semblance of normalcy after this. How how are you supposed to date? How how are you supposed to like you you can't date anybody. You're gonna. Hell, you're not worried about herpes. You're worried about fucking dying of coronavirus. It's fucking weird. It is fucking weird. You know what else is weird is like how many different things that they suddenly come out about like like articles. Like I see one article where people are like, well, smokers are more at risk. And like all of these people in 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 Wuhan, not only were they senior citizens, but they were also smokers. Yeah, so I heard that. But then literally, dude. I saw an article, I have to track it down again. I saw an article a couple of weeks ago that was like literally saying, well, smokers are more safe because your lungs are coated with, with the nicotine <laughs> and it helps. And it, it was like an actual article on a news source trying to say this. I mean, come on. All that on. black tar makes it tough for the virus. Yes. To I think France, like there's like, I want to say like 50 to 60% of the population smokes. Don't, don't quote me on that, but. The amount of people that smoke and the, the amount of people would, that died from coronavirus that were smokers was far less than the non-smokers. They're, you're supposed to be more at risk, but they're saying that even in, in a country that has got massive amount of people that smoke, the smokers were were dying at a far lesser rate than the non-smokers. Which I don't. I mean, so 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 smoking cigarettes is good now. I don't. I don't. I mean, I don't really. I, can, can I can I start smoking cigarettes now? I mean, it's really weird. Yeah, it's, it's really weird. It's like the the new like all these things keep changing. You got to wonder like how many of them is like brands trying to make sure that they stay viable, so people will spend their money, and how much of it's truth. I mean, I look at it like this. I I still think that we're still in the in the learning and discovery phase for this thing, and so all of the there's a lot of weird things that are coming about of it, and we're still learning about what it actually does. To our bodies. I mean, wouldn't you agree, Martha? Yeah, absolutely. Every week it's something new that it's doing. I mean, you know, recently it's been uh, blood clots that it's causing a lot of. And now there are issues with children that didn't exist before. I, I So I definitely think we're still in that learning phase. This thing's crazy. All I can say is Marlboro Man died of lung cancer like a real man, not of, not of coronavirus. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm all confused. I don't know what to think. So you ready? To, you ready to talk about our some musical guru shit, Suede? Hell yeah, let's do it. Okay. Um, what I let me define guru in in not necessarily in like a dramatic like training sense. Although I did actually have a guy who considered himself to be a musical guru. I'm talking about people that were more than just an influence. They were somebody that kind of changed your perspective and your direction musically. And uh, I'm going to start with my my sitar teacher, who is, who is no longer with us, Imrat Khan. And I, at the time that I went to 
study sitar. I was more into like rock music and I went because of the Beatles and he was kind of like, Oh great, we're going to talk about the Beatles again. Like he he wasn't real into that shit. In fact he told me he said Brian Jones from the Stones came to him and he wouldn't teach him because he was too drugged out. And I was like, wow. Um now he was he was a little bit younger than Ravi Shankar, which is I guess the most popular sitar player in history, so to speak. But when I would I would go over and I would bring my sitar and I would sit at his feet and it, it sounds kind of weird and I actually felt a little self conscious about it at first and I would watch him tune and he would spend the first five to ten minutes tuning his sitar and my sitar and we would talk and we would just kind of um, get to know each other a little bit but but watching him tune was like a whole thing in itself it, it let me know that there is precision in Indian music that I was not aware of in anything else. And that really changed the course of my musical perspective. Up to that point, I was self-taught. I had no lessons. I didn't, I didn't, my dad played guitar, but he didn't play well. In fact, some would say he didn't play at all. And the closest, the closest person that I knew that was musical, like, was your dad. And I think I've told you that before. So it's somebody that, somebody that kind of takes you under their wing or, Literally, or just kind of maybe you just become kind of kind of a disciple of the way they do things, and it changed my life and my perspective. And I've been playing my sitar a lot. In fact, you sent me that uh, that that rough take of the Drifter, the piano track, and yeah. it got I got out my my sitar today, and it was really it was weird because I'm used to playing all this cla- like Indian classical stuff, and I had to sort of reorient my brain to play something and the drifter is a weird chord progression so it took me a a minute to figure out what i was going to do with it music is so powerful to me that it not only changed my musical perspective it changed my perspective on life is there anybody that you can draw from i mean of course it's probably not going to be as dramatic as a sitar teacher or something like that but any musician you knew through your life that was like it just really changed you absolutely um I, I could talk about like ways that being in bands and feeding off of of those guys would help shape things. I mean, that was super informative. But I I, I could talk about like being part of programs um, and or like music festivals and like being a part of that. But all of that would have to start with first and foremost with one of my biggest influences would would be my dad. My dad was uh, he was a he was a music major in in school. Um, and I, I think he ended up having to uh, to drop out of the classes when I was a baby, and and uh, and, and didn't uh, he didn't ever make it around to that. He he still might go back to that at some point, but it didn't stop him from learning music and from being a part of it. And I can remember several, um, you know, and, and certainly both of my parents are, are very musical. Like my mom taught me my first chords on the guitar and things, but I remember this one really specific moment where me and my dad were going on one going on like an like a like an evening walk on like a some summer uh, evening and uh we would do that pretty often just go for a walk around the neighborhood and i think i was i was talking to him about one of the songs that you and i were recording on a on a cassette tape and i was describing to him the way that we used to do that i know we've talked about it before but you know basically run one tape deck and then have it have another one playing while you played along with it and recorded it live. And he was like, maybe you guys need to get a four track. And I was like, what's a four track? What? 
Yep, and I was probably maybe 14, 15 at the time. And I had never heard that concept before. Just without getting too technical on how it works, because he did describe it to me, just the idea that I could record um, independently four different parts of myself. Like I could play a guitar, a piano, and I could sing, and I could make some drums, you know, or something like that, and have those four things and have independent control over that. Like that just blew my mind. And suddenly my, my whole like pursuit of music changed. Like I just started saving up money to go and buy my my first recording machine. Well, you know I, what I mean, like, yeah, no, say, that's pretty significant. No, I will definitely, and I've said before, I will definitely include your dad in that because there were there were people that would come through our church, um, that would come and go like good like pretty solid guitar players, and I was always drawn to the guitar. But, um, wa- I mean, watching your dad switch between the piano and the guitar was pr- it was pretty it was definitely impressive to me because. Um, your dad had an understanding of music that uh, I, I didn't. I would say that I really didn't um, figure out until I probably started taking sitar lessons, where I actually got some kind of formal training. Where um, mm-hmm. music suddenly was, and something about the way that Indian music was, it was put in a language that kind of like, it clicked for me. Um, mm-hmm. That's cool. Indian music is all it, there's no chords and I, when I went because I I thought I got a sitar and I'm like well how do I make a D chord <laughs> which <laughs> it, it's kind of a musician joke but it was like it sort of trained me to think differently about music and not only that but it changed my attitude about music so much so that that I spent uh, years performing in a band and now actually now that I'm older I feel like. I might have wasted time doing that when I could have been applying it to something better because I will say this it was fun and there was a lot there was a lot of there was stress and there was fun and there was some a little bit of glamour but I find myself going back to the simple time of sitting at his feet and and watching him explain music to me performances come and go but music stays in your soul and sometimes I wish I might I would have put a little more in my soul instead of uh the performance, but performance, and I think you can probably back me up. Performance is a drug. Performing in front of a, a crowd is like a drug on its own. It's it gets you high in a weird way. Am I right? Hundred percent, man. There's nothing. There's there's not much like getting up on stage, having a whole crowd of people just like going for it, whether they're moshing or dancing or whatever it is. It's it's pretty awesome. But when I go yeah. when I, when I go back to my most meaningful musical experiences, I go back to me and you in a basement with uh, the two tape decks, experimenting with how to how to create a sound, or sitting at or learning from my teacher. Just just like my teacher would actually make me dinner. That's how it was. He would be like, "Are you staying for the dinner?" And he would cook Indian food, and it was great. And it was it was a it was more than just like a teacher student relationship. And and like I said, I I love playing in bands, but some but looking back now that I'm gonna I'll be 44 in two days, I really feel like that the the things I will remember the most are the personal connections that I made in music, whether with you recording or sitting with your dad and your dad, not even like playing instruments, but playing music on the on a CD or a record or tape for me. It really it opened my mind and. That's stuck with me more than the performance, and I don't know that, I don't know that thirty-two-year-old J Mac could have quite grasped 
what he was walking away from when I walked away from Sitar. It was one of those, I mean, it was a very tough discipline, and um, I had a lot going on in my life at that time. But I do miss that that structure. And I and did you ever take any formal lessons like piano? I know your dad probably taught you a little bit, but did you ever go sit down somewhere and they were like, "Here's a here here's a G chord, play it like this." No, I absolutely did. Um, I started off like playing music, like actually being able to play an instrument. I took piano lessons. I think I started when I was like eleven years old, ten or eleven, um, and I did that for a few years. Um, and it, that certainly gave me a foundation um, to to build other ideas off of. But, you know, one of the things that my dad taught me, I was thinking about this, too, when you were talking about um, being open to things just now. Um, one of the lessons that my dad taught me, you know, uh, certainly uh, was applied to music and changed the way that I saw things. But it really um, there's two things that he told me that really like kind of bled out into everything that I do in life now. You know, and and that he was telling me the context of music to like really listen to the songs and paying attention to like what instruments they used and how loud it was in the song, um, where it was sitting in the mix. Like, you know, the, 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 you know, obviously those are things that like not everybody who makes music would relate to. Sure. But it, it was the fact that it was like paying attention to it, listening to the details and then on top of that, he would say, I need to expand my horizons and not just get like focused on one kind of music. Well, those are two really simple lessons that can be applied to anything. You know, it it, it goes right back to what we were talking about, coronavirus stuff. We're just paying attention what's going on between the cracks or like anything you set out to do in life. You pay attention to how it's put together. You can learn almost anything that way. And if you stay open and keep your horizons open, those opportunities and those moments of connection with people they will come to you, you know, and that's really I'm I guess I'm realizing just now how much that shaped uh, the way that I think about things. And right? No, no, absolutely. And here's here's one of the things I just want to touch on briefly. Um, this is about expanding your boundaries. And, and growing up, um, we I mean, we were raised religious and I, I mean, I don't have a problem with religion and I actually a, a, applaud religion done in a kind, gentle, loving, giving way. Music for us, at least for me, was kind of like pigeonholed into like, if you are going to do music, it should only be religious based. And that really puts a kind of a clamp on your music. And that's why we talked about Larry Norman, the father of Christian rock, so-called, and other episodes. And one of the things that Larry Norman did was he was he was not afraid to go into areas that weren't necessarily okay about they they weren't they weren't religious like love is such a huge thing in music how many love songs have been written over the eons millions probably definitely Uh, and we were taught that i mean i was taught anyway that love songs were kind of like if you you should the ratio should be something like you should write 10 god songs and maybe have one love song in there and it really really put a, a throttle on my creative process until i realized I think, and I think that's why we did all those dumb love songs early on because we we weren't in love. We didn't we didn't even know what the fuck love was. <laughs> but it's but true. it but it was it was like it was opening a window into uh, a part of our soul, so to speak, that that was not really allowed to shine through religious music. I have no problem with religious music. It's not my style, but sure. I mean Elvis saying gospel stuff. I have a a CD of. Uh, 
Hindu chant that's kind of a, uh, I mean, it doesn't mean anything to me, but it kind of, it's a very peaceful. But I feel like music is so much more than what we were originally taught. And and one of the things that your dad did, it roundabout way was like, he he played me that, like there were some Chicago songs. Color My World, is that the, is that the song? Yeah. yeah. And that's a love song. And it was it was like, wow, this is actually good. And it's not about God or Jesus. And it's not necessarily raunchy or anything like that. But it was like, it was an emotional song that I'm like, okay, it's okay to write love songs. And so much of my music comes from hard times. You know what I mean? It's like, Sure. The worst times in my life have brought out the best music. After Adam died, I, I mean, wasn't all. What? Let's be honest, it wasn't all jewels, but there was some really good stuff in there. And I'm, and I feel like the darkness brings out the light, so to speak. And uh, um, it's something maybe if you're not a musician, you can't quite relate. But I think anybody that that can listen to music can understand the effect and the power of music. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there there wouldn't be a reason for like a national anthem for a country if it if there was some you know wasn't some sort of like unifying power of music, and it just it's it's always been a staple in any kind of part of civilization. There's things that get communicated that way. I mean, and for God's sake, I mean, you're literally disturbing the the physical molecules by playing it. Like music is deep. I feel like it's a privilege to be able to make music. Oh, it you is. Know? It is. And one of the things that my, my sitar teacher would always say, he would always, he would always go, it is the vibrations. You're vibrating the air. And I was like, at the time, I'm like, that's kind of goofy, but <laughs> it's true. That's what. That's pretty cool. And, and he would, he was all about the vibrations and he would talk about the vibrations of the sitar. And the weird thing is the sitar literally makes a science out of the vibrations of the strings because you hit the one string, the other one underneath that you don't hit if it's tuned right will ring with the vibration. And it was like, oh, I get it, vibration, which it's, it sounds corny, but it's there. That's I mean, you're literally disturbing the air around somebody's head and into their brain, which is kind of mind control if you think about it. <laughs> it it's pretty amazing because if you get down on like a, a, a like a quantum physical level, everything is made of sound waves anyway. So you're like actually disturbing everything. He's right when he said you're sending the waves out into the air. That's pretty cool. It actually makes sense though too, because like Indian music, uh, correct correct me if I'm wrong. You're you're definitely more of an expert on it than I am. But like, isn't a lot of it centered around like certain frequencies and how that they resonate with your body and and the air and the world? Like they write such weird stuff to our Western minds because it's more about the frequency and the, and the, and the moods that it creates. Is that, is that way off base? No, it's not. I mean, I would say, I would say it's like this more than, than, I mean, from what I learned, there were, there were ragas, which are the scales, which you play depending on scale being the notes that you choose to arrange the song. And they would have certain ones that they would play in the morning, certain ones they would play in the afternoon and certain ones that were played in the evening, which I guess they in theory felt like, were like in tune to the rhythms of nature. And I mean, I don't, I don't know, but, but there's been times where I've, I've heard an Indian, like an Indian rock and thought it reminded me of the time of day. So, I mean, it could be, but it's definitely about, it's, it's definitely about nature's music. And, um, I sound like a goddamn hippie. (laughs) Well, hey, I got a question though. Like, what what does raga mean? Like, is that like a technical term for a song? Like, 
What's a what's a raga actually? A raga, okay. I learned two ragas. Ragas are not songs. Ragas, ragas are scales with musical scales, which are notes with specific rules applied to ascending and descending notes. And I'm, I know I just lost everybody on the podcast with that one. <laughs> but for instance, um, they've got like a do re mi fa so la ti do, but it's there's a different there's a, it's like sob it's it's a, it's a whole different thing, and. Certain rogs will skip certain notes, like going up. You won't. You you cannot. You cannot end the phrase on, like, sa. Let's just say or a. Uh, and if and if you play beyond that, you have to skip that note. And there's also rules for descending notes too. And he taught me two fairly easy ones. But the rog is like a. Think of it as a framework for melodies to be created. And does that make any sense? makes a lot of sense i mean you could say that it's it's similar to like how we assign certain sounds to a certain genre like like this genre like if you want to do like a jungle beat it's like a super fast within this amount of space if you're doing like trap hip-hop it sounds like this yeah it's like certain little building blocks that you can build off of later that's pretty cool well one of the thing one of the things that i can compare to in western music you know like in guitar playing the minor pentatonic scale would be considered like a bluesy one. I think that's the blues scale. Um, yeah. Certain notes you play in jazz, there's like all kinds of weird scales that jazz plays. Is to give a different feel to it. Well, a, that's basically what a rog is, but there's there's more complicated rules to it. And then that's when that's when I, I feel like I missed a lot of what he was trying to tell me because I'm like, I don't play Norwegian wood, motherfucker. You know what I'm saying? It was like. <laughs> I mean, clearly not, but I remember bringing up a couple Beatles songs. And he's like, "These songs that are not very good." Like he was, he was, he, he was like, it was, it, it was not what the sitar was meant to do. And I, I respect that, but I, I got into to sitar playing to do things that that were unnatural to Indian classical music. That's 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 why I got into it. But that's cool. Though. Yeah. So, like, if 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 like for instance, a sitar player says he announces, "I'm going to play rag." Raga Yaman, that's not it's not like he's playing like Sweet Home Alabama. You know, it's not like that. It's right. it's he has his own melodies that he's created within the framework of that raga. Does it am I making sense? Yep. Makes a lot of sense. And there there are hundreds of ragas and I only learned two, and frankly, I've heard it said even from very skilled um Indian musicians that it's better to focus on a handful and master those than to try to learn 5,000 different ones. It's kind of like, a, if you know a blues scale, you can just slide it up and down the neck and play anything you want. There's no real reason, unless you're really going to be an expert, to learn like 50 different scales or however many there are. It's like, I, the notes, I like to use the notes when I want to use them. Indian music, like if I mean, I listen to some of my early recordings. I'm like, oh shit, I'm like all over the fucking map. I'm missing notes, and but that I mean that's what I wanted to do with it. And now, and now I take the knowledge that I've learned and like apply it to what I want to do with it. So yeah, I, I think we lost everybody, but <laughs> you can cut this out if you want. No, this might be a demonstration, but it makes me think that you know what we're trying to describe. You know, for someone that doesn't make music. And forgive me if this is too like simple, but like, you know, it could be anything like this. Like you have, you have a you have a hamburger. A hamburger basically is uh, as a hamburger between two like pieces of bread, like a bun. 
And then you can put whatever toppings you want on that hamburger, and it's still a hamburger. So like the raga, the rag would be like that that hamburger, and then the melody are the different toppings that you put on, but it's still a hamburger. Exactly. And one of the things that Indian music does more than any other music, maybe except jazz, is improvise. That's why they can play these these forty and fifty minute songs. They're improvising large portions of that, and that's where, like, I mean. I don't know how, I mean, explain to me how you work out a guitar solo. Do you, do you just improvise the whole thing or do you actually plot it out as you go? Um, I think it, sometimes it begins by improvisation and then, I, then that helps me discover the things I like and then I build it around that. Yeah, that's how I do it. I usually, I usually start with a riff and then go from there, but right. to do that for 40 minutes, I couldn't do that shit. I mean, that's. No, you'd that, be a jam band. That's mind-blowing. And then to be like, oh, you played the wrong note. Shame on you. You played this sharp and not the flat. You must go to the back of the line. You know, I mean, Imrot was never stern with me, but I've heard some of these sitar teachers actually get, they like, scream and hit their students. <laughs> That's like whiplash. Yeah, I mean, I don't really. No, I, I thought you were talking about the Metallica song. <laughs> oh. <laughs> no, whiplash, the movie about the dude. Uh... Who's like who, who? Who runs the jazz band? And like Miles Teller is like the like this awesome drummer. And uh, his teacher gets so upset at him, like because he won't play the beat exactly right. It throws like a cymbal at his head. I've never, never seen, seen that? that movie. I got to see that shit. Yeah, you got to see it. It's crazy. That's some crazy shit. It's good. <laughs> yeah, I, I had the opportunity to take guitar lessons, and I was always this is my impression of a of a guitar player, a real guitar player. Um kind of figures it out on their own and i think the teacher is important and it was like some like middle-aged lady who probably was into like john tesh or something no offense to the john tesh fans uh but i didn't want to play john tesh or, or i don't know pick, pick something pick something um but uh, i used to get in trouble from my piano teacher breaking the rules like- yeah oh, i broke the rules all the time i would get so bored like playing these songs and these in this book I would memorize the the song the way it was supposed to be played, like note for note. And then I would go and start making my own interpretations of it. And then I would start playing that during my, like when I was playing it back, to like prove that I did my homework and she would get so mad at me. Bad boy. No, get the plate the way it's played and don't just memorize it. Read it off the page. I'm like, this is boring. Mom, can I quit? And she finally <laughs> let me quit. And that's when I started writing songs. <laughs> you know, but it did give me a foundation. Well, I took I took vocal lessons for a while too, and that's a whole other thing. Um, but but a funny story. Um, nobody knows my sister except some of the family members that I know that secretly listen to this podcast. My sister went and took vocal lessons, and they were like, uh, "No, you need to learn the piano before you uh, before you take singing lessons." Translation: You suck so bad. Go learn the piano, learn music, and then come back. Because my sister, like my my sister, we like the church singing. Church singing, like, it didn't matter how bad you were, you were allowed to come up to the front and sing. And my sister would sing like a goddamn bullhorn. Every note was like 120 decibels. And (laughs) I'm throwing her under the bus, but dude, me and my my middle sister, who I, I won't mention the name, let's call my middle sister A. We would sit out in the, in the, the living room and listen to my younger sister T, like, do like, fucking death metal grunting to try to sing you know swing low sweet chariot or whatever the fuck she was singing in there 
And we would laugh our ass off. And my sister, A, went in and she goes, you sound terrible. She's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And my mom would be like, no, if you're singing for the Lord, nothing sounds terrible. And I'm like, disagree. <laughs> disagree. <laughs> that was terrible. No, I mean, dude, it was bad. So when she went to take singing lessons, when T went to take singing lessons, they were like, no, no, you, you don't understand pitch. Go learn the piano. And I was like, that's kind of a weird thing to say. And then it was like, oh, they don't want to teach her. Yeah, that's funny, dude. Yeah, I'm sorry. I throw uh, my family into conversation, like talking about like crazy people you've seen go up on stage and sing at church. Well, let's let's save that for our next podcast. All right, well, I got some good ones. One <laughs> one of the things I know maybe this show isn't like typical live dudes, but one of the things that I like about having different people on is to kind of do a different show from time to time, and that's what. I really enjoy sometimes going a little deeper into conversations. Let's let's be honest. Me and you would have this conversation on the phone. Absolutely. And Martha would be in the background being like, Sway, when are you going to get off the phone? I want to watch episode four of Lost or whatever the fuck you guys are listening <laughs> watching at the time. But like I said, it's kind of fun um, to record conversations for posterity or whatever you want to call it because it's fun sometimes. I mean, I get lonely. I've, I've been having a rough time. Because it's Adam died, I guess, four years ago, a couple weeks ago. I guess in, in 2016, he passed away on May 4th, like like literally like two weeks before my 40th birthday. So it's been kind of rough for me lately. And that's why there wasn't a show last week. I had some people on the line, and it, I just couldn't. I just was too down to do it. Um, but this really cheered me up, and I'm sure when I'm down later on, maybe next week or in a year from now, I'll be able to put this on and listen to it. And there's something about recording a conversation with your friends and listening to it later. Granted, you're not uh, saying doing illegal things like, you know, wiretapping and shit. But it it does cheer. Plants some steak and shake. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I've been incriminated now. I should be worried about my name. But yeah, like I said, it's it's been fun to talk. And, you know, sometimes we've done we've done episodes that are that are far afield of the normal live dudes things. And I've had listeners tell me that was one of my favorite episodes, something that's a little out of the ordinary, but I mean, this was good. And, um, I hope we didn't bore you too much, Martha. No, I just think these kind of podcasts are the ones where you reaffirm how intelligent you are. So. Oh, it's, okay. I'll go with that. <laughs> I'll go with that. Thank you very much. <laughs> you made my evening. <laughs> Well, thanks. Thanks for sitting in with us, Martha. You had some great things to say. Uh, I'm I, I'm sure that when all this coronavirus shit is passed, maybe in five years or whenever the hell it's like under control, we can listen back to this and be like, I remember how weird that was with all those people with masks on. Granted, we're not in the future, you know, like still wearing the mask and shit. I know. I know. I'll I'll be happy to look forward or to look back on this fondly and go, remember the time we were all in masks and. That'll be a nice thing to look back on one day. Okay, so you guys got to help me with the sign-off. All right, let's do it. For Live Dudes, I'm Jay Mack. And Swade. And Martha's sitting in. Saying if you need a deep cocking. Then just come a-knockin'.